Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Paul. There you are. How you doing? I'm okay. Um, hey, John. Hey, Father. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm well. I, my Zoom was updating. It was giving me fits. So. Yeah. You still got the COVID voice or whatever that is. Oh, I don't think. I, th- I, I think my voice is back. Oh. Yeah, it, it sounds not? good. It sounds good. It may just be the afternoon, you know, drinking and smoking too many cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm here with uh, John and Matt, and we are about to start. The, a new class, World Religions and Cultures. And I always think this uh, title might seem vague or scare people away, but you guys have both uh, studied with me and kind of dis- you've been through this class. And I'd like for you to describe uh, what you may have gotten out of the class. Well, I yeah, this, your World Religions class is one of my favorite classes that I think I took with you. And a lot of that was the expertise and firsthand knowledge that you brought from having lived in Japan for so long. Uh, But we were also reading heavy-hitting things and thinking through issues like the differences of theories that have been laid out there just on religion, the study of religion in general. Somebody like McCutcheon talking about you know, inclusive, sort of the standard categories of inclusivism, exclusivism, universalism, delved into a little bit of Karl Rahner. I remember enjoying the section on Orientalism as well, and you had theories about how a sort of Orientalism, reverse Orientalism, had taken place in Japan. And I thought it's a sort of class that broadens one's horizons quite a bit, But I'm also aware that we've all, I think, probably changed quite a bit since at least I took that class with you and if Matt took it even longer ago than that. In other words, in our thinking through these issues and subjects. The way that this class formed was actually back, you guys were both, I think, in the honors program when we formed it. But before there was an honors program, this was kind of the the place in which I began to launch, you know, something that was a little bit bit different than a typical undergraduate level. I don't know that I ever taught a typical undergraduate course. I don't think uh, so. <laughs> this is very broad based. Uh, one of the things that happens as we go and ask basic questions about what is religion and how can religion be an object of study part of the answer that you get is in what some would call consider the father of modern religious studies mercia eliade or however you say his name and eliade of course comes up with the notion that religious experience is a sui generis experience which on the surface sounds pretty good. And actually, I think this is partly what is needed. If you're going to have, and this is, of course, the issue in the modern university, what place is there for study of religion? 
is religion an object of study over and against psychology, sociology, philosophy, or in fact, do these subjects encompass religion? The justification for having a department of religion in the modern university, you have to make it a unique area of study. And Eliade makes this move, I don't think for simply pragmatic purposes, and that is, well, religious experience is sui generis, or it's a kind of noumenal phenomena, a noumenal category unto itself. The, the reason this may seem amenable to many Christians is this is actually the way that we think of Christianity. Isn't our Christian faith a kind of sui generis, you know, a kind of experience uh, a direct experience of the transcendent, so that we've projected, I don't know how it went, but I think what has happened, our understanding of faith and religion has been projected onto our understanding of religion in general, partly because I think we've misunderstood Christianity at a very basic level. And that is, let's you know, go back, is Christianity or Christian experience or our you know relationship to God, is that a an experience that is cut off from history? Well, immediately we should say no. Is it cut off from culture? Is it cut off from sociology? What we would like to say, I think, is is very often we want to preserve a place for religious experience. And so I think Eliade has, in fact, been amenable to many people's understanding of religion because of their own religious orientation in Christian theology. And, of course, I think the, the, the recognition that's come about in many universities, well, wait a minute. If what you're talking about is sui generis, what, what is it you're going to talk about? You can't talk about the manifestations of the religion, because the manifestations don't pertain to the thing itself. In other words, it's a kind of absolute transcendent understanding, and there really is no bridging the gap between the manifestation and the uh, the experience or, or understanding of God. And so many religious departments have, in fact, closed as in the modern university, because, uh, you know, you go and ask, well, what do you guys study here? And, of course, they can't name the object of study, and this is kind of McCrutchen's point, if I remember right. Okay, well, what is the alternative? Are we going to go with somebody like Peter Berger? Yeah, the sacred canopy. Yeah, he was a Presbyterian, but yet in his own theory, he left no place for religion. Because it was a thing that we posit in some way. I always, the illustration I always used in class was the idol maker, and that was a good way of explaining Berger's picture of the way that religion works. You know, the idol maker carves the idol, it in some way objectifies what he made, has made, he reifies it, and then that reification acts back upon him. So that there is in the process a kind of obscuring of the fact that he 
is the one who created the idol, that he, you know, is the idol maker. And so he completely explains the religious phenomena as part of his general theory of, of culture as the sacred canopy. Well, the problem is, well, now you've completely made the explanation imminent, and there's a complete gap. I think he was religious, and he, it's not that he was he's a complete materialist. And so I think that's the problem that we're faced with in modern religious studies, but I think also in our uh, understanding of theology. Well, just a couple of thoughts. Uh, the first one is, is it sounds like we're missing, you know, what Bogakov would call a sophiology, uh, another way, in other words, a way to sort of bring together the transcendent and the imminent, um, a sophiology of sort of religious studies or whatever. But almost sounds like the way that you're describing the project seems really secularized, right? Because when I think about religion, and if you ask like the normal person, like as a hospice chaplain, I would say, you know, what's your religious tradition? They're immediately going to talk about God. In other words, I think that that's how normal people think about religion is like a discourse about God. Now that might be, you know, we would call that theology. And so I, you have to forgive me because so many of your classes kind of just like meld together because I've took all of them. And sometimes I was taking like one class, you know, actually doing all the work. Then I was auditing the other class, you know, maybe more than one class at the same time. So I can't remember if it was um, if world religions and East Asian cultures, was it? If that was like, that was two different classes. Then you had the philosophy of religion class. Uh, it was all good stuff, you know, but... I think probably at that time, you know, that was around probably for me between like 2007 and 2011-ish. So I think that my own understanding has really hopefully, you know, evolved since that time. My understanding of, um, you know, how um, how Christians can dialogue interreligiously, you know, with other faiths and what Christians might be able to even appropriate as helpful for uh, Christian thought or Christology or anthropology or any number of different, you know, topics. So I think probably at the time I may have been sort of hearing you through almost more of like a, probably more of like a fundamentalist sort of um, perspective, right? Where um, the other religions are kind of posed over and against Christianity. And so there's always like this, uh, whenever you do the idol maker analogy for a Christian, it's easy to say, yeah, you know, it's because it's it's idolatrous, you know, and the, and, the, the, and then by definition, it's like, well, war religions are kind of idolatrous. And that's why I started with talking about God, because this is, I think, the, the benefit of using uh, David Bentley Hart's The Experience of God, because he's going to go through the different religious traditions and talk about, well, what do these different traditions mean when they use the word God in their own way? And to talk about it then is, you know, sort of like the absolute, the wellspring of all being, et cetera. You know, he goes all the way through. And so I'm not sure if that's what Peter Berger and Eliade or Eliade, if that's what they mean. In other words, like what's the object, what's the, what's the, is the, is the, is the object of the study of, of world religions, according to them, more of like an anthropological science or is it, you know, is the subject God? I don't think with either one, the subject is God. But not to exclude God in either case, it's just that I think in both instances, first of all, the, the very notion, you know, the sacred canopy, which could include God and, uh, you know, the function of God, is really a kind of reduction of deity 
to humanity. It is, a, even though he's a believer himself, his picture of the function of formal institutional religion is, well, God is just, you know, religion is just there to hold society together. Uh, Eliade, I think he loses God on the, for the opposite reason, but it comes out looking very much the same. And that is that God is that noumenal category, uh, along with religious experience, that we really can't say anything about. Uh, it's a total transcendence. We can study the manifestation, the historical religions. So religious studies are interested in just examining the varieties of religions with the presumption that there's a shared transcendent category, but you really can't say anything about the transcendent or God. And that's where, you know, someone like David Bentley Hart, I think, is going to make a difference, right? To well, no, I'd like for you guys to fill in, what does David Bentley Hart, and we're using his book, what do you see him as bringing, and I think he has a unique voice in uh, on this topic, but what do you, in your reading, what does he bring to this? that uh, is, I think, very much needed, and I, I think both of you agree. So the more I'm reading, the more, you know, right now I'm reading through um, Father uh, Sergei Bogokov's work, um, and the more that I read through Bogokov, the more that I'm seeing how how important he really is to the, I think, to the development of uh, David Bentley Hart's thought. I mean, it's it's really kind of striking uh, whenever you go back and read through Bulgakov and you say, oh, yeah, no, this guy really did influence uh, Hart's thinking, it really shaped it profoundly, you know, because I think with someone like Bulgakov, he is dealing with this issue of, well, how do you connect the transcendent with the imminent? And he talks about, you know, the history of philosophy, he talks about, we can argue about all this stuff, but I think that it's fair to say for Bulgakov that what he's, you know, talking about the history of philosophy is, is that you know, there's like the same struggle is going on between how do we connect the transcendent with the imminent and that even the patristic theology, uh, that, that, that there's a struggle there then to talk about, well, how, how are they, uh, you know, how do they come together? And of course, for Christian thought, uh, that's in our Lord and God, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, and so that's important for someone like Bogokov. I would, I, I think that's actually crucial for David Millie Hardy gets accused a lot of times of, um, sort of like not needing Jesus for his metaphysics and stuff like that. Personally, I think that's nonsense. I think that, well, he's an Orthodox Christian for one. And uh, for two, I just think that it, it's, it really is um, sophiologically uh, for Christian thought that that is like the important thing, I think, for someone like Bogokov is that, okay, how is it that the transcendent and the eminent can come together in two nature, say? And so for Bogokov, he says, well, yeah, you're going to actually need uh, what he called, you know, his sophiology, which he would say is like a divine Sophia uh, that's sort of imminent, you know, to God, you know, and the creaturely Sophia. So, you know, for someone like Bogokov, he would say that, you know, yeah, with world religions, even that just by virtue of human beings being created good and being created, um, you know, in the image of God with the creaturely Sophia. That uh, that there really is a, um, a, a connection right there between the transcendent and the imminent, you know, epistemologically, ontologically. Uh, therefore, you know, different cultures. I, it's hard to believe that you know somebody would kind of even put that forth, right? That you can that you can understand like the religious apart from the cultural or 
the sociological like that doesn't maybe from like a postmodern perspective like that doesn't make much sense to me yeah sociologically um i think that you can sort of make the case well but if but if all human beings are created in the image of god which for bogakov means like in the image of the divine sophia by that he means something very speci specific he means like what he calls the dyad of the son and the holy spirit uh, that the Son and the Holy Spirit, that the dyad um, of the Son and the Spirit are the divine Sophia, um, and that human beings are created uh, in the image, you know, of of Sophia, with the creaturely Sophia. And so all that to say that I think that Bogakov is trying to work out, and then Hart, I think, after him, how is it that um, we really can speak about God in a way, even sort of going across religious boundaries and sociological, cultural boundaries and, and and make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. So that in the experience of God, Hart goes through and he says, okay, well, what does God mean, you know, for Christianity, for classical theism? What does God mean in Islam, you know, in Hinduism, in Indian philosophy, you know, Buddhism? In other words, we have to make sure that we're all talking about the same thing. And for someone like Bulgakov, and I think, again, part following him, that because of the creaturely Sophia, because we're made in the image of God, that there really is, uh, and remember, I'm not an expert in anything, I'm just like a lay reader, I'm just trying to figure out Bulgakov, and I'm certainly not a, 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 a you know, an expert in Indian philosophy or anything like that, or even sophiolo you know, sophiology, but, I, but my understanding so far is that there really is, even if you grow up in a non-Christian context, if you're, you know, if you live in India, that uh, the human beings, because they're made in the image of God, because of the Holy Spirit is, you know, is life itself, is truth itself, is wisdom, um, you know, the dyad of the Son and the Spirit or wisdom itself, that human beings really can, then it's not that we might be able to reason ourselves to, like, say, the crucified God, but that we can all share in a sort of intelligent coherence about, well, as Thomas Aquinas would say, you know, a God worthy of the name God. What must we mean? You know, so that's probably like a really inadequate way to talk about oh, that's, how that's wonderful. I think I would just agree with you. Maybe put some things in uh, another way, but still in agreement. I think that maybe the Iliade and McCutcheon would represent sort of two poles that I wouldn't find myself at either one of them, and I find that. Perhaps the idea of comparative theology is more helpful than an old-fashioned sort of study of religions, as if you could catalog what these various world religions believe, which is what I hear you describing. And so my own thought is, of, of course, religion is going to be contextualized culturally, historically, uh, linguistically, etc. But with that said, I would not deny the validity of religious experience as something that can be reflected upon and judged and shared and uh, even collaboratively examined in that way and explored. And so from that point of view, I think it's important that as Christians engaging in this task, we believe that we actually do have something to offer, which isn't to say that, oh, it's just all the same. Uh, you know, the same thing is found everywhere, that we do have something unique, special to offer. But we, we don't discount that perhaps these other traditions also have something unique to offer us, and that we would assume a posture of being able to learn, even if that means 
uh, entering into certain practices. And I think, Paul, that was one of the points you've always made, that one way of coming at religion is to have a practical understanding. And um, I, I would not sort of division between the practical and the mystical in this sense, so that a practical understanding needs to be open to transcendent experience, but that religion can all, that's another dimension that has been perhaps overlooked, because as sort of Western uh, viewers, we tend to want to find a mental catalog of what a religion might be. It believes this, it thinks this, um, this is what it says about the world, etc. But oftentimes you enter into a set of practices that actually constitute what that religion is. And again, that I think that sounds almost like a, a, another form of imminentism, but just to say it's a practical way of getting at it doesn't mean that you're not practically engaged, you know, through practices of engaging in transcendent mystical experiences. I wouldn't be opposed to that idea. And so, you know, why should we be surprised? Sort of what you're outlining there, Matt, with Bulgakov. Why should we be surprised if in looking at other ways in which humans have engaged to the divine or the transcendent or even perhaps only the inner depths of their own psychology that we might not find something true and interesting there to, that we can learn from, uh, that we can share in, that may even inform us about Christianity when central to the Christian claim is that the Logos is what becomes incarnate, dwells among us and reveals God the sort of coherence of all things, the intelligibility of all things, uh, is what's going to manifest God to us as a specific human being that is also then opening the divine life up to us so that we might take part in that. I don't think it should be then surprising that that humanity that God has always loved and was willing to assume uh, in, in various traditions and cultures and contexts would also have something... Um, important to reveal to us. I'll add a footnote, and, uh, and that is that I hope that folks are gathering from this conversation. This class is not actually a, a traditional class that we're going to sit down and study this religion, this religion, this religion. We, do, we are going to bring up a variety of religions, but it's actually in this context of, of trying, first of all, to define religion, and how you differentiate or or how it relates, not differentiate, but what is the relationship between religion and culture, you know, the sociology of religion. And Orientalism that you mentioned, John, is simply an example of how this functions. That is, that's almost a larger category that if you go to Japan, religion, and this becomes problematic in other languages. We, we already know this from the Bible. Actually, religion doesn't play a very big role in the Bible, <laughs> which is a strange thing to say, uh, per se, religion per se. In Japanese, the word shukyo, religion, it's a very ambiguous term, and if you ask whether Shintoism or Buddhism are religions, or if you ask whether people are religious, it more or less creates confusion, because the instinct of most Japanese people is not to say they're religious. 
their primary identity marker is in being Japanese. And the religion then plays into that larger category, which sounds strange, but in this instance, I think captures partly what we're talking about, that Japanese-ness is actually the larger category. Shintoism and Buddhism just happen to fit into that. I think that what John said about practices is like a huge point to make. We might imagine that we can understand, truly, you know, understand um, without entering into, you know, the life of um, the, you know, the religious life of another tradition. There's a lot to be said, I think, for that. Um, and then I thought about, you know, I think that where this really all crystallized for me is even in, you know, in the book of Acts in chapter 10, Peter uh, says, this is around verse 34, uh, I now truly understand that God does not show favoritism, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Like, this is a revelation, right, of St. Peter. Um, and uh, to me, this really crystallized. I think that when we talked many years ago about, um, you know, Paul, you said that Kevin, I think it was Kevin Van Hooser that said that humility is the entry point into theology. And so I think that there's kind of two ways of going about this, this whole conversation. There's kind of like almost like an aggressive sort of um, evangelicalism, maybe in the guise of like a missiology or whatever, but like a, a sort of um, like almost an imperial, a religious kind of imperialism, right? Where, uh, or you could take the posture of actually maybe, you know, I could learn, there's something I could learn about what other traditions are, have you know come to through their sages through their mystics through their masters you know um because if we believe you know that that god is the wellspring of all being that he's everywhere present and filling all things that everyone who does what is right is acceptable to him you know that that should really i think provoke in us almost like a posture of humility to say like well maybe you know these people have something that they that they know and more importantly do something that I can learn from as a Christian, you know? And so that's not to like, kind of like be lame about it or wishy-washy or whatever, you know, I still believe that Christ is Lord, but at the same time though, that's what kind of sparked my interest in say like, um, you know, the Bhagavad Gita, which is the class that that'll be like the one section that I do. And I'm not an expert on the Gita by any means, but I remember when I picked that text up, uh, I was just blown away by what I felt was just like the spirit of the spirit of the Lord, you know, Bhagavad Gita means something like the song of the spirit, you know? And when I was reading through that, I was like, man, this is like a, this, this has to be an inspired text. Right. And, and I was reading this a few years ago before I kind of came to some of the conclusions where I'm at now. And that was kind of problematic for me at the time. I was like, well, wait a minute, how can this be an inspired text? The, you know, what does that mean for religion or for theology? But now I've kind of come further where I'm like, well, there's all kind of inspired texts. There's all kind of, you know, that again, because of someone like Bulgakov who talks about the Holy Spirit as inspiration. Um, and so the Holy Spirit inspires truth. You know, he inspires beauty. He inspires goodness and righteousness. And it, it transcends. It even goes beyond the boundaries of, you know, like kind of like the institutional church. When I begin to read something like the Gita and there they talk about the self and there's kind of like the capital S self. You know that uh, that is everywhere present and filling all things. It's in everyone, and that the whole point of um, I think of like sort of Vedantic, you know, philosophy is to realize that there's not two. Like that's what you know is it you know Advaita philosophy. It means like not two. That to me is like a valuable insight as a Christian to say, well, wait a second. That means that uh, 
even again as a hospice chaplain, that it doesn't matter who, what someone's religious tradition is really at the end of the day. I'm not there to proselytize them anyways, you know, I'm there to draw, help them draw upon their own religious tradition to get through their crisis. And so, but as a chaplain, someone who can go there and say, well, wait a minute, this person has like the, has the, the self as their, the trueness is like the fullness at the core of their being is God, in other words, and that there is no othering. And so that might be what we do religiously, right? Or even Christianly is like we want to other and say, well, there's the Christian and there's the non, and that's not to say that we can't draw lines and to say that's not true or, or whatever. But I think that for me, at least, it's more helpful to kind of adopt, uh, which is difficult for me, a more more of a, a posture of humility to say, um, well, wait a minute, what can this old lady who who has been, you know, uh, like a Hindu, her whole like a practicing um, Hindu, teach me about God? And it's profound what they can teach you. So if you can if you can pick up those texts and read them Christianly, at least for me. Um, it elucidates all sorts of different theological truths, you know, about the nature of, you know, ontology, about, again, God being everywhere present and filling all things, you know, and, and how to then achieve unity, because that's what, that's, you know, I think that, the, and again, I'm not a master of all world religions, but I would guess, and John might be able to add to this, that, you know, the goal of the religious life is to unite oneself with God or, you know, which is another name for truth, the good, the beautiful, you know, and that that's the whole point then is to eliminate, you know, at least in, in Hinduism, like the illusion of separateness or um, the illusion of like the transient, you know, the, uh, the finite, you know, those are, those are all critical things. I think for Christian spirituality that you might not get, you know, from like your Bible study because it's coming from a different, uh, you know, culture, it's coming from a different tradition that goes back like, you know, it's like 3000 BC, you know, with the, the Vedas and things like that. So these are, again, this is why I think John made such a great point about the practices, because these mystics and these sages and people like that, who are coming to these truths are doing so in like a super, uh, like almost like a monastic, you know, a Christian monastic sort of way, right? Like these guys are like, um, you know, not indulging the flesh was what we would say, you know, that they're, that they're trying to live lives of righteous piety and things like that. And that they're, um, they're learning things about God because they're becoming, they're understanding what becoming united with God must look like. And all I'm saying is, is as Christians, uh, and I think the heart, you know, this is why he's doing something like the experience of God, because different religions seem to come about that in different ways. I don't even know if I want to say in different ways, because it really does seem like, like John was saying, it's in the practice of righteousness and prayer, meditation, um, you know, ascetical sort of, uh, you know, works, you know, service, love, all these different things. So um, to me, that's really, that's really like a critical part about even the beginning of this discussion, like, well, what is religion? I, I would guess that, you know, what most people, if you're going to be religious, I would think that what you're trying to do is to discover, um, you know, the, the reality of, you know, what's the meaning of life, you know, who is God, who am I, like worldview questions, you know, answers to those types of questions. And I just happen to think that Christians can learn a lot and we shouldn't, we shouldn't close ourselves off to um, the wisdom. Again, just pick up the Gita and, and read it. Uh, and I would say, you know, read it allegorically, you know, just like I would say, you know, we have to be, have an openness to the text where we can um, not get wrapped around the axle in, in regard to like the, the letter. But if you if you read those texts allegorically as a Christian, I, I can't 
imagine anybody coming away from something like the Gita without being blessed by it. Um, whereas, and, and I say all that to say that I, I think there was a time in my own life where I was like, no, nah, it's dangerous. You know, don't read the Gita, you know, don't read the Gita, you know, don't read the Quran, don't read these other texts because you might, and there might be a little bit of, um, wisdom in that too, for a Christian who's, uh, a new Christian or like a catechumen or whatever, and that you should probably do all things in concert with like your spiritual father. Right. Uh, and under that spiritual direction, as John like taught me many years ago, that you gotta, the first thing you gotta do is get like a spiritual director those that the life of prayer that john has helped me to um grow in and things like that like these other traditions have their own practices that are like that uh, that seem to you, you know jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit a good tree cannot produce bad fruit you know a bad tree can't produce good fruit and so if you look at these different traditions and the beauty in those traditions the truth the goodness the righteousness that comes from if you actually like someone like gandhi you know lived out you know he just said well if you read I think it's, uh, you know, chapter two of the Gita versus like 52 through 77, something like that. He said, if all the other parts of the Gita were lost and you just had this and you you, it, you could follow this as a way of life, just like you could the Sermon on the Mount. Because Gandhi read the Sermon on the Mount every morning, you know, with the Gita. And so there's a fullness, I think, that we can get from uh, studying as Christians, the other world religions to say, okay, what as Christians can we appropriate? Can we appreciate? Can we, um, you know, sort of have that interfaith dialogue where we're where we're in communion with one another? And then also, what can we say that as Christians we would kind of like want to lift that truth into something higher, namely our Lord, you know, Jesus Christ, um, and to kind of name that and say, okay, yeah, no, what we're saying is that the the transcendent became imminent in a human being. And, you know, then we can go from there. In other words, we can, that's to me, the, the, one of the benefits of doing a class like this is like missiologically, you know, if you really want to have dialogue, you, you should really not understand like a caricature of what the people, you know, believe or what your biases or prejudices tell you that they believe. But to actually, you know, like John said, like hang out with them, you know, like see what their practices are, see, see how, the, you know, what they do, why they think what they think. And then, um, you know, form that friendship where you can have an interfaith dialogue where you can say, yeah, you know, that's why we think this is the highest because, you know, this is like an expression that finds its fullest expression in a historical person, our Lord Jesus Christ, and, you know, kind of tell our side of the story. But hopefully you have that friendship with them where it's not like a, a again, like an aggressive sort of imperialistic kind of like, oh, I'm going <laughs> to, you know what I mean? It's like true friendship where you're really trying to learn, you know, from them um, and come to a common, I think, a common understanding. So even if they stay, you know, uh, Hindu and you stay Christian or whatever, like, that that's okay for them and that's okay for you i don't know what to make of that you know um you know may, maybe i should be working harder to like you know bring them over to my side but again as a chaplain i can't we can't we don't do that you know we don't, we don't proselytize but even in my personal life like i wouldn't have any problems in sharing my faith of course and saying like yeah like we think that this is the highest let me help you know you've helped to point me you know in this direction, let me help you. You know, we're helping each other here to just understand like what we must be talking about when we use the word God collectively. And that's, I think, what you've just described. And you did this beautifully, Matt. You've brought together Bulgakov and Hart. And that's really what we're doing in the class. You know, what Sergei Bulgakov is doing in 
describing, you know, he uses the example of Plato and Aristotle. And of course, in using Plato and Aristotle, you're, it's almost like you're not simply using example. It's almost like, well, actually, here's the foundation of much of human thought. And human thought then can take one of two forms. It can take the Platonic form, which tends to focus on the transcendent and not the imminent. And you could, in, you know, you could take somebody like Eliade and say, well, he's doing a kind of Platonism in his understanding of religion. It's not that it's entirely wrong, but there's some, there is an element that's wrong with it. And then you can take Aristotle, who is kind of transposing in Bulgakov's language, Plato into the imminent realm. And you could take somebody like Berger as just an example uh, of taking the transcendent and then totally reducing it to the imminent. So what you have is this dialectic or these, this antithesis. And the way that Bulgakov talks about it is that the antithesis actually is informs both sides of the dialectic. If you're working with this sort of antithesis, the very fact that there is a gap, that there is a dualism, that there is a separation, whatever the separation, you know, maybe it's the separation between Plato and Aristotle, or maybe it's the separation between sociology and the study of religions, or maybe, maybe it's the separation between heaven and earth, soul and body. In other words, we tend to work through these antithetical categories. And what Bulgakov is saying that I think, and this is his take, this is his intro into religion. In other words, he, he does two things that is hard to find in most people. He is very appreciative in a kind of positive fashion of Plato, of Aristotle, of re other religious traditions. And at the same time, he can say, yes, but there is the, the danger, as there would be in the danger with purely a Platonic form or purely an Aristotelian form, of imagining this is an end in and of itself. And so he can say both things. And even he, he talks about the possibility, you know, in the early church, they may have equated some religious religions with the demonic. He doesn't dismiss that, but at a, another level, he says, yes, but that to reduce other religions to the demonic is uh, a kind of blasphemy. And then he demonstrates from Scripture that in the Bible itself, there is this rich appreciation for, you know, uh, for God working with all people. And of course, one of his favorite illustrations, and it has to be key, is the character Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, you know, here is one who is before Judaism. We know nothing about the religion of Melchizedek, but it in some way precedes Judaism, and it jumps right to Christ. However you want to say that, or however you want to imagine it. It's a it's like a pagan. You know, he's from he's from presumably near Sodom, 
you know, so it's like, in other words, it's a pagan priest. It's a non-Israelite priest who blesses Abraham. <laughs> that uh, we can't presume that there is, first of all, I think the failure is to, to read a kind of chronological line in Revelation. But what we understand is that God is working and speaking to all peoples everywhere. So I think we, we need Bulgakov. I think we need to say that in the ingenious fashion that he does. But having set that stage, I think then we can have an appreciation of David Bentley Hart. That, and I just read Hart. Maybe, I, maybe he would resent me doing this. I just read him as being inspired by Sergei Bulgakov and that he is developing one side of Bulgakov's understanding. But if we put heart in that context, then we can read the experience of God in which he's laying out, you know, this broad-based unity on the understanding of ultimate categories. Again, what we need to say is what Bulgakov says, and that is, but we cannot confuse Aristotle's unmoved mover with the Trinity, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But on the other hand, can we identify, can we say that other people do know of God? Clearly, that, that's the case. In him we live and move and have our being. That thought itself, our life itself, is in him. There is no experience that is apart from God. So all people, and this is Paul's point on the Areopagus, pointing to the unknown God. Oh, that what you do, you know, you think is unknown. Well, that's the one in whom we have being itself. It, it, there needs to be a full, a fulsome, a philosophical appreciation, religious a, a, appreciation of the religions, and understand that Christ may be speaking there too. Now I'm not doing, you know, this is part of the class we go through and talk about, oh, are we going to talk about an, an anonymous Christian? I don't believe there's such a thing. Are we going to talk about a kind of uh, all-inclusivism? In other words, all those, or a pluralism, I think all of those categories can be problematic. So what I'm describing may be something like Melchizedek himself. We may not be able to grasp how it is that God is working with all people, but we just believe that, right? Mm -hmm. And we and this is Bulgakov's point. Well, you know, that was the belief in the early church when they when they call the Gentiles. They're calling them to something that they have an implicit knowledge of. Right. The the interesting thing is, you know, even with the case of the wise men. Presuming, and I think it's a right presumption, these are foreign astrologers, or, you know, maybe they're scientists. We don't know where they're from. They're Zoriastrians from the East. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever it is they are. But they get to Jesus first and recognize him first mm -hmm. before the people who should have recognized him. You know, they pass through Jerusalem, and they just imagine that Jerusalem will be a buzz with the coming of the Messiah. And so they just, well, they just thought they could ask 
the guy on the street will tell it should point the way. Mm -hmm. So that Israel, Judaism, which was preparation for, and in no way do we want to deny that, also then became an obstacle. Isn't that something that we can say at some level about every culture and religion, that it can serve both roles? Just as Judaism can be preparation for, well, it could also be an obstacle for recognizing the Messiah. And of course, that's, you know, that obviously there are many Jews that do come to Christ, but there's also many who cling to their Judaism as an end in itself. And isn't that the danger? Certainly, we want to appreciate Judaism, whatever that is. We want to appreciate the religions, but we also need to understand their fullness and their yeah, fulfillment. Mean, ironically, Christianity itself can become an obstacle to God, <laughs> right? Uh, a misunderstood Christianity. And so if you make religion an end in and of itself, right, um, that's that's the thing that we're talking about, that it can actually become an obstacle because it others. It's a, by, you know, by nature, it's a fundamentalism that would other, um, you know, and, and thus lose out on uh, the, the universal self, you know, of Indian philosophy or whatever. But I think that Bogokov serves as a really nice model here too. Not You know, his great dream was to unite the, uh, you know, orthodoxy in the Catholic Church, the East and the West. Um, and so uh, the reason why I think he's a great model for us here is because of what you said. You know, he can say something like, well, Plato's symposium is the height of pagan thought when it comes to something like, you know, Eros. Uh, he you know, goes on and on about the symposium, about the the beauty, the wisdom, you know, there of Plato. But he can also engage critically the limitations of Platonism. Uh, he, you know, he talks about Aristotle with profound, deep appreciation, you know. But he can also point out uh, that he can you know, the critique, um, you know, from a Christian standpoint. And then he does he goes through different, you know, he 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 has uh, heavy critiques for the Indian philosophy, for Hinduism, things like that. You know, and even he gets in trouble because he does the same thing with the patristics, you know, that in other words, he can engage the the fathers with a deep uh, appreciation. He's an Orthodox Christian. You know, he has a profound respect for the tradition, for the councils, for the saints, etc. But he can also then engage them critically and say, well, yeah, but they 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 didn't say this or they, you know, maybe they, they were limited by their context and their time, et cetera, or maybe they got wrapped around the axle, so to speak, you know, with things like the origination of the Holy spirit, um, as if the third person, of the Trinity can have an origin, um, you know, and they miss the sort of the forest for the trees, right. They, they miss out on like a pneumatology that's a vibrant and, uh, um, you know, growing. In other words, it becomes stilted in his opinion. So, in other words, he's a good model for us in that regard. That we can, we should be able to, as Christians, to even reflect, you know, critically reflect upon our own biases, our own like the obstacles in our own Christianity to God. You know, and so I think that that's that's a really awesome way to I think do interfaith dialogue is through um, you know confidence that you that Christ is the highest. But also the you know that's what he talks about the um you know the the dual sort of like the humility of the spiritual of the Christian spiritual life and also the audacity is what he calls it. He says, well, how can those two sort of um, seeming antinomies exist coexist together? It's like, well, how can you be humble and audacious? But I think as Christians, you can say, 
No, like we 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 accept this is what this is our faith is in the resurrected Christ. Um, but we can be uh, audacious uh, about this also, and and be creative and to appropriate. Then maybe there's some things in in um, Vedantic uh, philosophy that as Christians, like you know, we have not been humble enough to receive. There's been revealed truth there. Um, because of like what you just described with Bulgakov, that uh, because of human beings are made in the image of God, the creaturely Sophia, the energies of you know the creative energies and things like that um, that exist just by virtue of being human and lovers of that maybe we've missed out on some of this stuff because we've just out of pure pride or pure arrogance or whatever you want to call it. And so I do think that we need like both that humility and that audacity to be able to both. Um, kind of accept the revealed goodness of you know the highest for us as christians but also the the goodness of the other face but also the kind of like the audacity to um reflect critically upon our ourselves on maybe other traditions and where they may uh they may have taken a wrong term or, or even bogakov talks about where there is there can be an element of sort of the demonic uh in as much as it would take us away from our lord jesus christ and um serve as a deception or a false teaching right um, but that that can also happen in 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 some forms of Christianity as well. I think I'm afraid. I would say I, I hear you both pointing to uh, what we all believe as Christians, and that's that there's a need for baptism, there's a need for regeneration. There's you know all is not well in the world, and whether that's we're talking about what we call culture or what we talk about as uh, politics or religion or whatever it may be, some a different faith tradition. All is not well, and as Christians, the way that we understand this is revealed to us is that, of course, we must be repentant and be baptized, and I think that's this is, adds attention to this discussion that makes it difficult, because this is, of course, a message that we're charged that is not just for ourselves, but is the message that we're supposed to take to the world, is to repent and be baptized. So we think it's a universal uh, that all people, all religions, no matter how enlightened one is, uh, needs to turn, turn to Christ, be baptized. Okay. And, you know, historically, of course, when this works well, that means that we believe a lot can be redeemed. And I, I hear that's like the flip side of this, right? There's something we can learn from other faith traditions. There's something we can learn from other uh, religions, but that doesn't take away the, the Christian belief that's anyway. Right that we need repentance and baptism, which is why I think that Christian, I mean, it's usually this whole discussion about world religions is sort of a Western phenomenon, isn't it? Uh, and I think that's probably why, is because um, no matter how far astray we go, <laughs> whether we're Christians or completely secular sort of Christian heresy, we have this notion, uh, this idea that uh, whatever else is out there somehow has to be brought into what we have. Uh, not that it's all wholly wrong, but I think it leads to a sort of even what we might just call secular skepticism about things. Uh, or I, I hope, you know, the dark side of that or the underside would be a sort of fear of the other, uh, the other characterized as demonic, etc. But the truth to that is, I think, can be put in a really humble way, as you've said, and that's that as Christians, we don't call anybody to baptize. As people who call others to baptism, we ourselves recognize that we need that sacrament. Mm -hmm. Can I say uh, what you said, that, that we need conversion? Yeah. And this gets very delicate. We, we need conversion 
in relationship to culture, right? I'm not saying that conversion happens immediately. Maybe it takes a lifetime. But the thing that we're partly being saved from or converted out of, and I, I want to put this right because it would you could so easily put it wrong, it certainly pertains to absolutizing culture, the culture of which we're all inevitably a part and what, which makes up what we are. And so our own conversion should in some way, I was just talking to Brian this morning, uh, who, who gives us the imminent frame? Uh, Charles Taylor. His biography is very interesting because he's raised in a kind of bicultural situation in Canada. He's both French and English-speaking. Well, he's a Christian, and he maintains his Christianity, but it's almost like he's able to do that because he immediately sees the delimitations of any particular cultural understanding. You know, the same thing, I think it took me to go to Japan to understand I needed conversion from out of a particular cultural understanding, as I do, I think Japanese do also. So part of what it means to be baptized, to convert, it's a worldview conversion. It's a conversion from out of absolutizing of culture, but it's also a redemption of that, a finding a fulfillment of that in Christ. So I can't stop speaking English. I can't stop, you know, there's some things that we're just ingrained into. And I think, Matt, this speaks to what you're talking about. I think in this country, in evangelical Christianity, we can say that Christianity is the largest, most difficult obstacle to Christ in this particular culture, which sounds heretical or blasphemous. But I think the idea is it's like in Japan, where Shinto and Buddhism serve Japanese-ness. Well, in this country, Christianity is a, a part of a cultural, nationalistic understanding and in that sense, what we call Christianity is the religious obstacle to Christ. I can give you a, I heard this, I didn't look it up myself, but apparently not so long ago, there was a Pew survey that was inquiring about who identifies as evangelical. And uh, surprisingly, or not so surprisingly, you have now conservative Muslims and Jews and um, atheists identifying as evangelical because it is associated with right-wing America, God, you know, etc. This is sort of God and patriotism. Uh, American Christian nationalism is what we call, but you could religious, whatever that, whatever that is in the end. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like, you know, this is the thing I was talking to Paul about the other day. It's like it would be totally wrong to imagine that, say, Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, actually corresponds to Islam or that, you know, the state of Israel uh, corresponds to Judaism or that America then corresponds or correlates with Christianity. It's like that's a total misunderstanding because what theocratic, the theocratic state would always want to sacralize the 
uh, you know, the material or the, you know, the finite. I think I took this from Chris Hedges, by the way, uh, would always want to um, sacralize, you know, the imminent, <laughs> whatever, you know, the, the, yeah. the finite. It can be an well, obstacle, but that, that's not to what, say that for me. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. No, no, no. That's so fascinating that you say it. So I, I was just as a little fun reading, reading sort of an old book, but uh, by Owen Chadwick. It's the, the um, Christian church during the Cold War. And when we think about theocracies, uh, you made this point really well just now. When we think about theocracies, I think what we most often think about is some situation where the church and the state work together. And, um, uh, you know, mm. it's like the church is ruling or whatever. Or And then we have other versions, maybe more realistic versions of like what state churches are. And usually we would think about uh, Protestant Germany. We might think about England. Uh, we might think about the Nordic countries. But in Europe, it was true that during Soviet rule, during communist rule of most of Eastern Europe, you had state churches. The state is atheist, mm -hmm. but is, of course, controlling and, uh, and sometimes using the church uh, for its own ends appoints all of the bishops, et cetera, et cetera, in these places. And you have clergy, of course, and bishops that are conspiring with the KGB, I, this whole thing. But uh, and how, what did you say about eminentism a second ago? The, 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 it, the, you know, the theocratic state would always want to sacralize the... Yes, yeah. and that's exactly what happens in this scenario. So that, you know, we, we think about, oh, the, the Soviets is godless and whatnot, Marxist. But the Marxist, traditional Marxist doctrine was not that you actually got rid of religion by force because you just create martyrs that way. Mm -hmm. uh, traditional Marxist doctrine was that um, once through industrialization, and the proletariat owning, you know, the means of production, that religion would just fade away, uh, just like the state itself would fade away, uh, which, of course, never happens. And in a few countries, they're militantly against religion, uh, and it doesn't work. So you get really odd things, like in Russia proper, of course, they're persecuting Christians in the Orthodox Church. But in the midst of World War II, when Stalin needs patriotic fervor he realizes the best way to do that is to let priests lead the troops into battle under the sign of the cross and this is one of the ways they defeat the nazis but then of course once the war's over it's back to business as usual and you throw all the priests back into gulag in other words the church just looks like a stooge in most of eastern europe but that's exactly what happens it is the imminent frame that gets sacralized in these places what's odd is we would like to point the finger over there and say, this is what happened, this is why, you know, Christianity fails in Eastern Europe, etc. But simultaneously, the same thing happens in the West. And even the statistical numbers about church attendance and theological belief, uh, you know, when you ask people theological questions, are they able to or uh, articulate an Orthodox belief? It mirrors each other, whether you're in the West or the East. It is the sort of sacralizing of the imminent putting the church in service to the state, uh, et cetera. We, we've done the same thing here. It's an interesting point. And so it makes the study, of, to bring it back to your class, Paul, it makes studying religion sort of a fraught thing, because where is this not true? So as Christians, we're very quick, of course, to say, well, that's not Christianity. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but uh, yeah. um, you yeah. know, are we going to extend the same 
courtesy to uh, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, which are, of course, uh, all religions. Uh, Some of them have more of a manufactured feel than others, perhaps. I think, of course, state Shintoism in Japan. But, of course, they're all, as we've just articulated, they're religions that have been forced to serve the state, the culture, whatever you want to call it, essentially, power. They've been forced to... Uh, support imperialism so i think there is a warning or a caution there not to say well that is the religion we're studying because of course we wouldn't want that turned back on ourselves that's why i told paul you know he he wanted me to teach the class on uh you know the gita on the same week where he was really drilling down on things like white supremacy and like uh you know and it's like well wait a minute I think that white supremacy functions like a religion. In other words, like it is like a, you know, the, the nationalism and all that stuff. It's like that's worthy to be in that conversation of sort of world religions because it's a secularized sort of national, um, you know, in other words, all the categories that probably ap- apply to religion. I would imagine you could probably uh, sort of just shift those right over into, you know, the practices, et cetera, of sort of nationalism, of uh, ideology things like that because you know unfortunately religion can function more like an ideology than the good the better sort of higher part of religion which would be you know unity with god and things like that so there is like there's like that dark side of religion that i think is true where it functions in a very similar with a sort of devotion call it you know a love for the state uh, a subservient you know in other words you uh the, the ideal uh, that you're trying to attain to or whatever is uh, sort of like you said, like imperial sort of power, the exp- expansion, American exceptionalism, et cetera, othering, in other words. But othering is like in, it's inherent, it's intrinsic, I should say, to 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 sort of <laughs> nationalism, right? It's a it's a it, it, and talk about the demonic, you know, being being unleashed or whatever. That if if that's like the object of your devotion, but I mean, it's to be clear, you know. For me, it's like, yeah, yeah, I might love, you know, Krishna, but I don't think that Jesus is just another avatar among others. You know what I'm saying? So I believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is 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 God incarnate, you know, and so that in, in a different way than say, you know, Krishna or the way that um in other words, I don't think that he's just another avatar. So I can still appreciate, of course, though, Krishna. I can appreciate the different uh traditions, but I do think that you're right, John, to call people to repentance is to call people specifically to our Lord Jesus Christ, to turn away from whether it's the state, whether it's nationalism, whether it's white supremacy, whether it's, you know, capitalism, whether it's even, you know, sort of um, a failed religious understanding that as Christians, missiologically, we really are calling people to something very specific. And so, yeah, we can. I think we should frame it, and you know, in the in the context of like friendship and things like that. And it's not to say like, oh, my my deep ulterior motive. I'm just friends with you because I want to, you know, convert you to Christianity. No, but it's like you know, Jesus said, "Let your light shine before men," you know, so, so that they can glorify God. Right. So hopefully, it's the type of Christianity that we're embo- that we're embodying, where people can see that, like, oh, mate, man, this, you know, these guys are like dissidents against uh, sort of like uh, in the truest sense of. Um, calling Christians, calling religious people away from a, a sort of what we would call like an idolatry. And I think that sometimes we we could um, sort of underestimate or overestimate idolatry or, or like misname it or whatever. But to me, it's just as dangerous to have like an idolatrous relationship with the state 
it, it could it probably far more dangerous to have sort of like that sort of idolatrous orientation than to just say be like a you know a good uh, I don't want to beat up on any religion but a good religious person right that that is just like some some devotee uh, to like what as Christians we would say yeah that's not the fullness of of like the revealed um, tradition that we have in Christianity. But if you're if you're fiercely devoted to a sort of ide- a violent sort of ideology, that's that's like a re- that's like a dangerous religion as far as as far as I'm concerned, right? In other words, like which which is more dangerous to be like a, a, a peace loving uh, Muslim, you know, from a Christian standpoint, or an, an American evangelical Christian who has a higher devotion to American exceptionalism than they do to sort of the exceptionalism of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so that's why I was like, man, I'm a little bit nervous about subbing out, you know, that section of the class for the Gita because it's, it's a critical, I think that's a critique that Christianity should be bringing. And again, Bulgakov has a profound appreciation for Russia and for, he even talks about, you know, um, that, that the love of family and of country and of things like that, that is part of the creaturely Sophia that, you know, that we naturally, he wants to talk about like natural grace, that we naturally love our family, that we love our community, our culture, our country, and that that love is inspired by the Holy spirit. But of course that can become an adulterous, uh, sort of disordered love, Right where Christ calls us, He says, "If anybody loves their family more than Me, you're not. You can't be My disciple." You know, so there is like the you know Christ always comes in and wrecks everything in a really awesome way. You know, I'm afraid that in I guess as Christians in America, we're faced with like this mission to call people from the false religion, uh, in some ways like a false Christian religion that's associated like with what John's talking about with power and with uh, wealth and. Um, exceptionalism and things like that, boy, that's that's like that's like the antichrist. That's the beast. I'm 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 way more concerned about that from a from, you know from like a pastoral sort of standpoint or whatever than I am about you know a devoted Jew or something like this. Like, it, is that out? Of, is that out of is that am I take going too far? You're going exactly the right way. And and as we're describing, you know, I I have to implicate myself in so much of this being raised in a tradition in Texas kind of I was kind of naturally molded into you know you go from being kind of a part of the Jesus people into a kind of right-wing Reagan uh, republicanism in other words I think that the religion has been engineered you've talked about the engineering of a religion but I think that it's almost always engineered of course in this instance Christianity has in some way been co-opted by the right-wing nationalism but so too maybe it's easier easier for us to see or not i don't know the same thing you know you mentioned in the soviet union or in germany the manner in which both roman catholicism and protestantism but you know buddhism zen buddhism in japan and I'm not talking about just any Buddhist. I'm talking about the premier Buddhist thinkers in the Kyoto school are right-wing, were right-wing nationalists. So that the religion was used to mobilize support of the emperor. I don't Buddhism, know, ideology. Yeah, the Dalai like Lamas were feudal lords for yeah. centuries, yeah. That's the thing. It's I mean, like it's, it's Christianity. Pervasive. Christianity is not an ideology, right? 
and so like but religion oftentimes like it, it can like even christian the christian religion can become an idol an ideology but it's an ideology that doesn't serve like the big I, you know, like the like whatever the uh, you know the idea of God or whatever. Um, but a finite, or in other words, a second, you know, a sacralization of the state of the of the culture of the right. Like we can uh, that to me is like the nature of idolatry is to sacralize, like to say that this culture, that this this ideology, this politic, this economics or whatever, that this is the way. And it's like no, that's that's not right. Like the way is embodied in a in the humility of the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kenosis, the the you know becoming a servant and things like that. And it's like so, but he wasn't a servant to the to the state or to the financial order or to those different things. And so I guess that's kind of an interesting intersection there of religion and ideology, um, and how those two regardless it doesn't matter what name you associate it with christian you know muslim judy you know zionism whatever in other words those things become easily entangled sort of religion and ideology and i guess i'm, I'm wondering how do we extract ourselves that's the that's the issue <laughs> and this is the this is the issue how do we extract ourselves how do we disentangle ourselves from this problem and maybe, you know, this. I, I always think that the death of Socrates and the death of Christ at least points us in the direction. We often think of Socrates, play, you know, and Socrates is kind of the father of Greek thought in many ways. Socrates dies in the city for the city, never having challenged anything about the city. And in, in a sense, Socrates would rather die, not in a sense, he does, he would die rather than be cast out of the city. Because the city-state, the Greek city-state, was definitive for him. And with it, then, the last thing he does is he wants to offer a religious sacrifice. So that he is a conservative. Christ is over and against this in his dying outside the city. In the words of Giorgio Agamben, or the what he writes about, he is homo sacer. He is not even human. Uh, he's cast out. There's a sense that our conversion puts us outside of the city, that we identify with the outcast. In terms of racism, we identify with the one on the lynching tree. We cannot identify with those who, you know, who do the lynching, who do the crucify. That's integral, but that we're talking about two things and this is you know we're not doing a flaky john hick you know right. all the religions are the same which by the way is a denigration of every religion right nor are we doing a kind of fundamentalist oh all the religions are of the demons right which is also blasphemous there's the antinomy there's the tension so we have to do both things i think we can have a deep appreciation and with that deep appreciation, recognize the danger. In other words, it's not simply because the religions are false. It is, in fact, the truth of the religion serving a lie mm -hmm. that has captured Christianity in this country. But so, too, with every religion, there is that danger that its truths will be made to serve a lie.
<laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah, like I'm thinking that almost uh, religious fundamentalism is always already an ideology, right? Because and you can do this, like I can see it in myself, you know, orthodoxy can become an ideology, right? Uh, I mean, like Eastern orthodoxy, like you're done in the wrong way, or like Thomism or Calvinism, or you know, you can go all, or, you know, you can be a Shiite, you know, you can go through all the different ways of being a fundamentalism. What funda To me, what fundamentalism basically boils down to is the othering of who's in and who's out by a strict, by a, what we would call the law. Uh, you know, that there's a law that you, that you, one has to um, adhere to, that if you step beyond the bounds of this law, you're no longer one of us, you're, you're you know, you're the other. And so what I mean by that is it's not in the service of love. Anytime religious fundamentalism, you know, it become it almost already or always is, like I said, an ideology. And an ideology, I don't know that an ideology can ever serve, uh, you know, at the altar of love, right? Because it, it, it it's always an exclusion. It's an exclusionary uh, othering that creates enemies and like in other words like the most fundamental distinction becomes like the friend enemy distinction but of course this is the value in something like uh indian philosophy or in the gita where they're saying there is no friend and enemy the self is in all the you know the big s self is in paul it's in the right wing the left wing the you know it's it's in all and so to me that it's almost like religions can become uh by their very nature a sort of othering that creates enemies and to me that already is a false ideology that's already we've already left the path of of you know of christ you know but again i can you, we can see this and i can see this in my own tradition in, in orthodoxy where there's an othering of you know um you know if you're not orthodox or if you don't practice these types of you know uh that's why bogakov is held in such suspicion because how dare you, you know, critique the Holy Fathers as if that's a monolithic thing that, you know, you know, how, how dare you like even talk, think about reconciling with Rome after, you know, all the differences that we have. In other words, but yeah, but now you're that's functioning to me as an, ide an, an ideology that at the end of the day, um, I don't know if I want to say it's evil, but it, it seems it feels evil to to separate because of an ideology, human beings uh, and to exclude them, to anathematize them, you know, based upon these fundamentals of your your ideology that differ from someone else's. Like, isn't this what that we've all, in some way, maybe we've done that in thinking of ourselves as the chosen, the saved, and those people, those you know. In other words, there there is an inherent danger in Christianity that suddenly we, we do the division. We count the in and the out. And I'm not saying that they're, they're, that we can't distinguish, but I think the sort of distinguishing that tends to happen is what you're describing, that in some way we've become an exclusive special class rather than, you know, that's the evangelism that you're talking about. The evangelism can function like an ideology, I'll pretend to be your friend if you'll become a Christian. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, you know, it's like the enclosed ego becomes a collective sort of, in other words, like you have the enclosed self that would other by definition, there's I and there's the other, but it becomes like a collective ego. 
right? But the whole point of, you know, Christianity, I think, and of Indian philosophy is to put the ego to death. So in other words, they're it, the self is, is it, that's the, the coolest thing to me that uh, whether we believe it or not or buy it or not, but that's what, you know, Indian philosophy is saying is that we imagine that there's division, but it's illusory. It's not real. Even physics tells us that everything is connected, that everybody, that, the, that unity is at the heart of the universe, that peace, you know, is the highest dharma for Gandhi, you know, that the, the highest dharma is nonviolence um, because of that, because of uh, that unity is at the heart of uh, of what it means to be human. And so if like the enclosed I uh, becomes like kind of a collective I that others, everyone else, right? It, it's like uh, that by definition is going to result in a kind of a, a violent orientation towards and i don't just mean like the bull crap like violence of words i mean like legit violence people dying you know let um, me say a ter a terrible thing on the forging plowshares podcast isn't it possible that peace itself can function as an ideology where it's made a pragmatics it's made a utilitarian peace in other words the peace that we're talking about is the peace of jesus christ and so I think that the the danger is that when we fall short of Christ, we land in ideology, even on the most purest of things, even where we can find a fellow travelers that will go the furthest with us. There is still the danger that falling short of the of the fullness of Christ lands us back into some sort of utilitarian ideology. Now I'm happy to be refuted on that. <laughs> <laughs> sounds right to me well i mean that's <laughs> that's a, that's what john's critique you know not his critique but the, i mean he's right i think it's a fair point to make peace like a test of fellowship to make any there is no test of fellowship in other words we're already united the fundamental truth of of the human being is that we're one in christ or is that too far john well i mean yeah the, the in christ part's the question <laughs> uh, yeah. it, it, the uh, <laughs> But I, so I think maybe a purpose of this class then, Paul, would what? To be able to have this conversation well and across differences towards seeking that um, unity that we believe is at the center of all things, as Christ is at the center of all things. Yes, yes. That's the point, that we can have the deepest appreciation from that perspective. I'm afraid that, it, it, that this can turn out so often uh, a kind of flakiness in which you do not, you know, you look at only the good and you don't see the bad. It's always the, you know, this is always the Orientalism danger. The the Western missionary who goes to Japan and suddenly you see him, he's sipping tea and doing Zen and uh, he's become more Japanese than the Japanese. And it's, it's, it's revolting, I think, to see, because they've just absorbed this in a kind of simplistic... It reminds uh, me of the Orthodox, you know, who, like, are, you know, they fight for the Byzantium, you know, and then they're like, it's like... Uh, the Orthodox convert who laments the fall of Con the sack of Constantinople. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, okay. That's exactly. Yeah. That's Whatever. exactly. It. Uh, like, come on, man. It just gets silly at some point. That's exactly it, John. And I think that's. I, I and so as Christians, like, so how then the next the reminders, of course. Well, how how does this not become a sort of arrogance or something? And I think that's the constant call to confession, uh, the call to a sort of salvation that we're on the way, that we're being transformed, 
as you said, conversion. That's the ongoing process of conversion. So it's never, I think, the the check on this that Christianity should have, but doesn't always in these conversations, is that to say that Christ is in the center, and that's the way we have this conversation, isn't to say, oh, I've worked that out. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I, uh, you know, I now live in the perfection, and, you know, et cetera. That's it. That's it. But that Christ is always also a critique on us. But. I, I was just saying that that to me that's part of the tension for me personally. It's like okay, if you're uh, if you're a universalist and you don't think that that's ancillary to theology, that that's actually what makes Christianity cohere in some way, which I I do think that that's how it is. Uh, and then you know the idea of pluralism and things like that. And but then there is also kind of like the exclusivity of Christ. And that is a tension that I don't have worked out, right? It's like I don't, and as a chaplain, right? It's like I don't, I don't have that completely worked out. That I believe that unity is at the is at the center of all things, but that there really are, you know, evil doers and wicked people who, um, you know, slaughter Palestinian children. There's me. There's me. Yeah, there's, that's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. There's me. That's exactly right. You know, that's yeah. the thing. That's the old universalist thing. It's like everyone will be saved except me, you know, you know, that that really is the posture, John, you're, you're right about that, you know, but it, there is that tension though, of like how to work that out. It's like, okay, if I, if I believe that unity is at the center of all things that eventually all, you know, will be saved, that God will be all in all. Um, and that there's truth to be had in all sorts of, because of the creaturely Sophia that exists in all people made in the image of God, all human beings. But that there is that there really is though like the supremacy of Christ that there that Christ is being enthroned uh, in history in my heart. But like John is saying, first of all, in my heart that Christ needs to be enthroned in, in me. Um, but that you know that, that that there is like this historical outworking of the you know what Bogolkov calls like the kenosis of the Holy Spirit. That of course the Holy the omnipotent Holy Spirit could just you know melt everyone or whatever you know or, or, or you know kind of coerce everyone into you know submission or whatever. But that God's patience is His kenosis. You know that that the Holy Spirit that is His like sort of humiliation is that He allows for freedom and things like that. But in the context of like this discussion, it's hard to always work out like well what that must mean to believe that uh that christ is lord but that also we there's something that we could learn from krishna you know something beautiful and good and true but like you were saying earlier about religions it would be to undermine into sort of um dishonor or whatever you want to call the other religious traditions to say that oh we're actually all talking about the same thing um so that, that actually occurred yeah that's i you've probably heard me tell this story we we had in Scuba, Japan, we had an interreligious dialogue. Actually, it was set up by a group of Muslims. We had a series, you know, not just a one-day thing. But I remember it was the Buddhist priest from Thailand who was British who actually said that. And, of course, up in front, you have the Muslim clerics, you have the Christian preachers. And, and of course, he, in saying that, is taking, you know, all you know, I understand you guys have your little, you know, your little uh, spats among you, but understand we're all we're all one. We all worship the same God, and of course, what he was saying, I see the whole elephant. You're the blind men. One of you has the ear. One of you has the tail. One of you has, you know, the leg, the trunk of the tree. But I, I can see all. In other words, the the arrogance. The ultimate arrogance is the flaky, oh, all religions are the same. It, it is a, a, a denigration of all 
that were there and of all other religions and it it is a kind of haughty not an appreciation of but a dismissal of the particulars of the religions yeah that's excellent hey this has been great uh john before we go i would like for you uh, this is going to be a key class that you're going to teach, that we're putting into place the final stone of the foundation of forging plowshares. Can you describe, then, the upcoming class in the synoptics? No pressure. Yeah, so I... I <laughs> I've been so wonderfully blessed by this opportunity to teach on the synoptics. And uh, I, I guess what's good about it is I do preach from them regularly. So if anybody's familiar with the lectionary cycle uh, in the, the churches that have such a thing, um, you get the Gospel of John sort of on high and holy days, special occasions. But otherwise, you're going through Matthew, Mark and Luke in, in that order cyclically over and over again. And um, the class will, of course, be taught from the perspective that that's the best way to read them. One is uh, as Gospels that were to be preached and heard and received, but also as, um, as individual theological my argument may be too strong, but it's theological. We're not going to be doing a harmony of the Gospels, in other words. So it is Matthew has a message, Mark has a message, Luke has a message, and that message turns out to be a Gospel of peace, which makes it, of course, fitting for forging plowshares. Uh, or probably the reason why there is such a thing as forging plowshares is the Gospel happens to be a Gospel of peace. And so I will uh, be teaching a class on that as a sort of locating it or the the sort of thing that it will be like is there was a famous commentary on mark i think done back in the 1980s by ched myers who is a christian um he's teacher activist etc and it's called binding the strong man and then he's written some supplemental materials for that uh and it's specifically about mark but we'll be doing similar readings of Matthew and Luke as well as Mark and it was revolutionary at the time because it proposed that you could do a sort of cultural um, anti-imperial uh, critique in reading the gospel of Mark which has now become pretty standard fare so it's it's set the tone in, in that direction of reading the gospels understanding the political implications of the gospels I should say so I'm looking forward to it I, I'm very excited about this. Uh, it's a huge undertaking, and you're the guy to do it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> I guess we'll find out. <laughs> I might also mention that Jordan Wood uh, is going to be, Jordan Daniel Wood is going to be teaching a course on Maximus, the Confessor, and that will come right after it begins at the end of March, so we're also looking forward to that. So I think we got a, a great lineup uh, for 2024. Amen. He actually is an expert in the subject matter that he's going to teach. On. <laughs> yes, unlike me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there, uh, as far as I'm concerned, he is the expert on Maximus. Of course, other people have very different opinions about Maximus. But yeah, I think it'll be a good time. And actually, it'll give him a chance to soar in a fashion 
that he may not normally get to do. I think he can take us to some depths, as you will with the synoptic guys. <laughs> hey, I appreciate you guys. Glad that we could do this. Looking forward to the class, World Cultures and Religions. It's starting the next week. We actually may meet on Monday, but we will also... Uh, there'll be opportunity to to also meet on another day. So if uh, if you've not signed up for this class, uh, this is your chance. We'll see you guys. Thanks a lot. Love you guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.